So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible and need one, uh, if you raise your hand, we have people in the back who'd be happy to bring you one. Uh, But John chapter 6 is where we're going. And while you're turning there, I'll just talk a little bit about the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, again, many of you are probably familiar with this miracle that Jesus did. It's, it's well known. He took five loaves of bread, two fish, multiplied it, fed thousands of people. They ate plenty, and there was plenty left over. All right? This story is actually short, shared in each of the four gospel accounts. The gospels are the four books in the New Testament that tell about the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. So there are four of those. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each of those four tell about the feeding of the 5,000. So that shows us that it was obviously one of the most memorable and significant moments in the earthly life of Christ. But we're going to look at John's account because John gives us more information than the other three. See, the other three... Matthew, Mark, and Luke each tell us about how Jesus fed the 5,000. They tell us about the miracle itself. And that's, that's great. That's awesome. But John takes a step further. You see, John tells us about the, the purpose behind the miracle. Now, you see, the purpose of the feeding of the 5,000 wasn't just to feed the 5,000. That was great. That was a big part of it. But Jesus had a lot more in mind than just sending thousands of people away with full stomachs. And again, that was part of it, a big part of it. But he was after much more than just that. And what we see in John's account is that the feeding of the 5,000 was, it wasn't just an incidental thing that just kind of happened. It was a divinely orchestrated event which God had set up for a very specific purpose. He wanted to accomplish something and show people something in Jesus doing this miracle, and that's exactly what he did, and that's exactly what John tells us. All right, so we're going to actually pick up after the miracle itself. So if you're in John 6, if you look at verses 1 through 15, that's the story where Jesus feeds the 5,000 right there. That's where he actually does it. It tells about that. For the sake of time, because John 6 is a long chapter, I'm going to start after that. Many of you are probably familiar with that. If not, I would encourage you, go read the beginning of John 6 on your own after this. But that's where he actually feeds the 5,000. Verses 16 through 21, Jesus walks on water and meets his disciples in a boat. No big deal. (laughs) Which brings us to verse 22. And this is where we're going to pick up. Verses 22 through 24 says this. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So this is the next day now, the day before Jesus feeds thousands of people. The next day gets here. What do you think the people are going to do immediately? They're going to look for Jesus. He just fed them in abundance the day before. They want more. They're going back. And why wouldn't you? I'd be doing the same thing. But they go looking for him. They notice he's 
They saw his disciples go in the boat. He's not there. His disciples aren't there. And so they take the boats. They cross the Sea of Galilee looking for Jesus. Because they want more bread. Verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? So they find him. Think how exciting that is. Man, this guy just fed us yesterday. Next day, we're looking for him again. We found him. Great. And they ask what seems like an innocent enough question. Rabbi or or teacher, when did you come here? Seems innocent enough. When did you come here? But if you read on to the next verse, Jesus' response is not maybe what you would expect. All right, look at verse 26. Look at how Jesus responds when they ask him this. It says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. These people find Jesus, ask him an innocent question, and Jesus immediately calls them out for seeking him. He says, look, you're seeking me. I know you. You're not seeking me because you saw signs. You're not seeking me for who I am. You're just seeking me because you want more bread. You ate your fill of bread and fish yesterday. You're just looking for more. He calls him out right away. And and from this, we see that Jesus knows these people. He knows their hearts. He's God Almighty in the flesh, all-powerful, all-knowing. These people aren't pulling one over on Jesus. They're not fooling anybody. Well, they are, but not Jesus. Now, he knows our hearts, too. We can't fool him. And so Jesus, knowing this, calls them out. He says, you're only seeking me because you're looking for more bread, like I gave you yesterday. He goes on to say in verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. So you notice what he does. The first part, he calls them out in their question. Second part, he totally flips the conversation. They come looking for more bread. He says, first of all, you, weren't looking, you were just looking for me because you wanted more bread. Second of all, don't work for the bread that perishes, but work for the bread that endures to eternal life. He takes the, their question, he takes the conversation, he flips it, and he puts an eternal spin on it. So when Jesus is talking about food that perishes, like he says in verse 27, don't work for the food that perishes, He's talking about the bread that he gave them yesterday. Right, that's the food that perishes. Let's just think about this. Food perishes. It goes bad. It spoils. It rots. It disintegrates. More than that, what happens after you eat food? You're hungry again. These people ate their fill yesterday. They were satisfied by this bread. Not even 24 hours later... They're hungry again. It's the food that perishes. I ate breakfast this morning. I'm hungry now. More than that, that bread they ate the day before might have sustained life for, what, a couple days? Maybe a week? However long you can go uh, without eating? But that bread will only sustain life for so long. It's a matter of time before after eating that bread... They're going to die. The bread perishes. They're going to perish with it. And so Jesus says, don't work. 
Don't strive for the food that perishes. Strive for, work for, put your effort and your mind towards the food that endures to eternal life. So he, right away, he takes their search for this food. He says, this food perishes. That's going to fade away. Your life's going to fade away with it. He says, work for something better, the food that endures to eternal life. Right, so right here, Jesus is starting to give us a clue what the meaning of the feeding of the 5,000 was. He hasn't come out and said it yet, but he's going to. And this is the start of it. All right, but look next at verse 28. Look at how the people respond as soon as Jesus brings up eternal life. They ask him a simple question. Jesus calls him out and says, you know, work for the food that endures to eternal life. And their response immediately, verse 28, is, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Now, that question seems out of place, but as soon as these people heard Jesus bring up eternal life, the first thing their minds went to was, okay, eternal life, yeah, what must we do? Now that you're on the subject, Jesus, what works must we be doing to be doing the works of God? What do we have to do to get that eternal life? See, in their minds, eternal life was something to be earned. It was something they had to work for. So as soon as Jesus brings it up, they immediately think, what must we do to get that? What works must we be doing to make that ours? And again, Jesus' response to their question is somewhat unexpected. Verse 29. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. That you believe in him whom he has sent. What's notable about Jesus' response is what he doesn't say. Right? They ask, what must we be doing to be doing the works of God? And you might expect Jesus to come out with just this list of things they must do. Well, you should probably tithe 10%, pray six times a day, read your Bible at least for five minutes a day, uh, go to church once a week. He doesn't say any of these things. He, he doesn't break out into a list. Right? Instead, what Jesus does is he places the emphasis not on man's work for God, but on God's work for man. You notice right away when he says in verse uh, 29, he says, this is the work of God. Places the emphasis squarely on God, not on man. He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The people ask Jesus about eternal life. What must we be doing to be doing the works of God? What must we do to get that? And Jesus' response is so simple. He says, here's what God would have you do to get eternal life. Believe in him whom he has sent. It's simple. Believe in the one whom God the Father has sent. Seems pretty clear. The people still aren't getting it. You'll kind of see in this passage how slow they are, um, how blind they are really to who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. So Jesus tells them that. Again, seems straightforward. But verse 30, they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. 
So their response to Jesus, when he says, believe in him whom the Father has sent, the people are recognizing that Jesus is talking about himself, that Jesus is claiming to be the one who the Father has sent. They know that Jesus is claiming to be a prophet from God, somebody who speaks on behalf of God. They recognize this. And they want proof, more or less. They said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? You see, the Jewish people at this time were expecting a great prophet to come into the world. It's written in the Old Testament. There will come a prophet uh, like Moses who will come. They were expecting this. Moses was their greatest prophet of all time. And so when they, they see Jesus come and basically claim to be a prophet from God, their response is basically, so what are you going to do to prove that you're a prophet sent by God? They say, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. This is a reference back to Moses. If you think back to the Exodus story, when the people of Israel were freed from Egypt, think of the plagues, uh, the crossing of the Red Sea, all of those things. They, they're freed from Egypt, and they're going to the promised land. Well, during that time, God called down bread from heaven, and he sustained his people in the wilderness for 40 years. This is why Moses was at the head of Israel. And Moses was their great prophet. So they're saying, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. In other words, Moses gave us bread from heaven for 40 years. You're claiming to be a prophet. What sign will you do to show us that you're the prophet come into the world greater than Moses? See, they saw Jesus give them the bread and fish the day before. They were looking for something even greater. Moses gave him bread for 40 years. What are you going to do for us now? Something greater than bread for 40 years? This is what they were looking for. Jesus' response in verse 32. He said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So they ask again, what sign do you perform to show that you are a prophet sent from God? And Jesus again takes their question and he basically reframes it by saying that the true bread from heaven is not a what, it's not, it's not something to be had, but rather it's a who, it's a person who comes down from heaven. In fact, I love verse 32 right away, how he says, I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. He said, first of all, let's get this straight, guys. It wasn't even Moses who performed that. It was my father who worked through Moses. All right, so let's get that straight. It was God who sent down the bread from heaven originally. And it's going to be God who sends down bread from heaven now. It will be a work of God when it happens. Second of all, when he sends the true bread from heaven, it's not a what. It's not going to be physical bread. It's going to be a who. It's a person who God will send down from heaven. And again, Jesus is slowly revealing the purpose of uh, the feeding of the 5,000. By saying, work for the bread that endures to eternal life. Believe in him whom the Father has sent. 
And then by saying the true bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He's slowly revealing it to them and making it clear. They're still not picking up what he's laying down. Because in verse 34, they they respond. It says, they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. They're still not quite making the connection that the true bread of God isn't a what, it's not a thing, but rather a person who's going to be sent down from God. They're still not making that connection. Which brings us to verse 35, where Jesus finally makes things crystal clear. He can't be any clearer in verse 35. He says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's made it clear now. He says, I am the bread of life. You're looking for more bread? I am he. The one who, the bread that endures to eternal life, like he said in verse 27, he's saying, that's me. The one whom God has sent, the one in whom you must believe in order to get eternal life and be doing the work of God, that's me. The true bread from heaven who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, that's me. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And again, he's making a strong connection back to verse 27 when he said, Don't work for the bread that perishes, but work for the bread that endures to eternal life. Right, remember when he said that, the, the bread you guys are after, you want more bread from heaven? That bread perishes, right? And you're going to perish right along with it, right? The bread your fathers ate, the manna in the wilderness, that bread perished. Where are those guys now? They're all dead. They all perished. He said the, the bread that endures is the bread that comes down from heaven, Right? The, the one in whom they must believe to get eternal life. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread that endures. I am the bread that will not perish. I am the one in whom you must believe for eternal life. I love how he says, too, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Right? They ate the bread, when he fed the 5,000, they ate that bread. Less than 24 hours later, they're hungry again. They're no longer satisfied with that bread. The, the Israelites in the, in the wilderness with the manna ate the bread. Every day, they were hungry again. I ate breakfast a few hours ago. I'm hungry again. I'll eat lunch today. I'll be hungry by the time Wes comes around. I'll eat pizza tonight. I'll be hungry tomorrow morning. That's how food works. Unfortunately, sometimes. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. That, you're, the food you guys are after, that's just leaving you wanting more. It's just your desires aren't met. They're not satisfied permanently. He says, man, come to me. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me won't hunger. I will satisfy your hunger. You come, partake of me. I will meet all your desires. All your satisfaction will be found in me. The Jews, again, are having trouble with this. You can't make it any clearer. They're they're looking for the bread. You know, sir, give us this bread always. 
Give it to us. Show it to us. Finally, verse 35 says, I am the bread of life, standing right in front of them. He's, it's been given to them. It's right there for their taking. Just believe in him whom the Father has sent. Verse 41, the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? They're hung up on the fact that Jesus said he came down from heaven. They know his mother. They've seen him grow up. They can't, they're struggling to comprehend the fact that he has come down from heaven. That he is eternally God in the flesh. They, they, they can't reconcile these two things. Right? And so they're still refusing to believe in him in their hard-heartedness. And so the dialogue continues. They keep refusing to believe, keep asking for more. Jesus keeps answering, keep giving them more, and they still will refuse to believe. Verse 48 Jesus continues to make things absolutely crystal clear. In fact, I'm going to start in verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Again, he's making things as clear as he possibly can. He goes back to the Israelites in the wilderness again saying, Guys, your fathers, they ate the manna. They ate the bread from heaven and they died. He says, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. See, Jesus is making clear that the whole point of the manna in the wilderness was to point forward to the true bread from heaven who would come and sustain his people forever. You see, the, the, the manna in the wilderness was what we call a type of Christ. And so, did God use that to sustain and, and keep his people alive in the wilderness? Yes, absolutely. It was an actual historical event. It happened. But, more than that, it was pointing forward to the coming of the true bread from heaven. So that when the true bread from heaven came, people would recognize this is the true bread. The whole point of the feeding of the 5,000 was the same thing. Again, it wasn't just that Jesus wanted to send people away with full stomachs. It was that he wanted them to look beyond the bread that he just fed them with to the true and living bread that will feed them forever. Right? That was the point of the feeding of the 5,000. And that's what John tells us in his gospel. Right? That, that people would look beyond the physical bread and fish that's in front of them. That they would look to the true and living bread who came down from heaven to bring satisfaction, eternal joy, eternal life. The true and living bread. Right? That was the point of the feeding of the 5,000. 
that they would look beyond just the material blessings that the miracle brought to the true blessing that is Christ himself. And Jesus is making it clear. Telling them, look, you're missing the point with the feeding of the 5,000. You're missing the true miracle behind the miracle. The the most astounding thing isn't that Jesus multiplied fish and bread to feed a bunch of people. That's astounding. But the, the God who spoke the universe into existence can feed whomever he wants by ever, whatever means he wants. The true miracle is that God the Son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, took on human flesh, came to this earth, was born in a human body, lived a fully human life, so that he could become the living bread for us. Right? That is the true miracle. That's what he was trying to point them to. He makes this clear in 51, verse 51, when he says, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. When he says, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh, he's talking about the cross. He's anticipating his work on the cross. Why? Because it's through the giving of his flesh on the cross that Christ will become the living bread who will bring life to the world. It's, It's on the cross that he will bear our sins in his body. It's on the cross and in his flesh that he will absorb the wrath of God on our behalf. It's in his flesh on the cross that our sin will be paid for and taken away. So that we can then share in his resurrection life. So it's at the cross, in his body of flesh, that he becomes the living bread. That whomever believes in him, whoever partakes of him, will share in his resurrection life. And if you want to see the true extent of God's love for you, look no further than the cross. Right, Romans 5.8 uh, says that, but God shows his great love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right, the, the pinnacle of God's love for us is the cross. The proof of his love for us is the cross. Right, it's at the cross that he feeds us. Not with, not with more stuff, not with material blessings per se, but with himself. It's through his flesh that we are given eternal life. It is in him that we find eternal satisfaction and eternal joy. It's in him that we find satisfaction and joy in our lives right here and now. And so if you want to know the full extent of God's love for us, look at the cross. Because it's there that God demonstrates his love for us by feeding us Christ himself. So to know how much God loves you, don't look at material blessings. Look at the cross. 
that the cross is the proof of God's great love for us. It cannot be taken away. Right? It endures to eternal life. Right? The proof of God's love for us is the cross, because it's at the cross that Christ becomes living bread for us. If you look at verse 52, the people there begin to dispute among themselves. They say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're, they're, they're still finding obstacles to belief in Christ. They're still finding ways to disbelieve in him. They're hung up on the fact that he said, whoever eats of my flesh partakes of the bread of life. And in verses 53 through 59, Jesus goes on to say more. Whoever eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood will have eternal life. Again, saying, I am the bread of life. You ate the bread yesterday. You're hungry again. You'll perish. I am the true bread, the living bread. Eat of me and live forever. Now these people were caught up on the fact that Jesus said to eat his flesh. So quick side note, Jesus isn't talking about literally eating his flesh and blood. He's speaking metaphorically about believing in him. And we know that because in verse 40, he says, whoever... Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. It says verse 40, Everyone who looks on the Son and believes should have eternal life. He goes on to say, Whoever eats my flesh, drinks my blood, will have eternal life. Again, using that metaphorically of belief. It's not that we literally eat of the flesh and blood of Christ. But that by our faith in Him, we are united to Him, that we become partakers of His death and resurrection and in so doing in our being united to christ it is in that that we have eternal life that's what jesus is saying i am the true bread of life come believe in me partake of me be united to me and then share in my resurrection life and so for some of us in here today some of us haven't done that. Right? Some of us have not looked on the bread of life and believed. Right? And maybe even like these people, the, Jesus standing right in front of you, the bread of life right in front of you, saying, don't work for the bread that perishes, but work for the food that endures to eternal life. Right? Standing right in front of you, saying, believe in him whom the Father has sent, the living bread. And so if you're in here today, never having believed in Christ for your salvation, then I urge you today, believe. Look on the true and living bread. Believe. Right? Be saved. Share in his eternal life. Stop looking to the bread that perishes for satisfaction here and now. Stop looking to the bread that perishes for life. It perishes. You'll perish right along with it. Look to the true bread, the living bread who has come down from heaven to give us life. Look on Christ and believe. And to others of us in here who have, we have looked on Christ and believed. 
right? What other bread are we running to periodically? Yes, we've turned to Christ in faith. We've been saved. We've partaken of the living bread. Man, but what other things do we fall back to looking for satisfaction? What other bread that perishes do we run back to looking for joy, looking for life, where ultimately it can't be found? Right? It can be good things. The bread that Jesus gave the people when he fed them was a good thing. We, we should rejoice in that. Jesus gave them bread and fish. Praise God, that's awesome. Bread is a good thing. But it can't satisfy forever. And so don't look to it for what it can accomplish. Don't look to it as your ultimate identity. Don't look to it as the source of eternal life. Right? And we do the same thing all the time. Right? Trying to look to bread that perishes all the time. Oftentimes things that are good things, be it food, money, work, even family, sports, that's a big one in our culture. All things we look to, all things we run to looking for satisfaction, for life, for eternal joy, Jesus said, that bread perishes. Those things will perish. You'll perish with it. Come to me, the living bread, the true bread from heaven who gives eternal life. Those who come to me shall never hunger. Those who come to me shall never thirst. I am satisfying. And so even for us who are already in Christ, we are still tempted to run to other things, other bread that perishes for our satisfaction. And for life-giving power. And it's only to be found in Christ alone. And so with all of us in our lives right now, man, it's not that we need to just feel terrible about liking things, these different kinds of bread. It's that we need to see them for what they are. They're good. They're good blessings from God, good gifts, but those will perish We must find our hope, not ultimately in the gift, but in the giver himself. And so it's not that we just need to completely cut ourselves off from all of these good things. Because, all right, I'm not going to eat food. I'm not going to watch sports. I'm not going to spend time with my family. I'm not going to make any money. I'm just going to go be a monk and live in a monastery in the mountains. Not necessarily, right? It's that we need to see the surpassing worth and surpassing glory of Christ. We need to see that these things are good, but they ultimately can't satisfy us. We need to go to Christ alone for our satisfaction and for our life. And so don't, this isn't a guilt trip to stop doing X, Y, and Z. But to see the surpassing worth of Christ and to come to him and and feast on him. Be satisfied in him. Find life in him. Right? For he alone is enough to satisfy and bring life. I'll end with the last segment of John 6. And I want to end by contrasting false faith, false belief, and true faith in Christ. All right, look first at verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said... This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Jump down to verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. 
right? These were, these were disciples. They were following Christ, claiming to be believers. But things got tough. Jesus said some difficult sayings, uh, maybe didn't meet their needs like they wanted them to. They turned back, no longer walk with them. Compare that with verses 67 through 69. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. All right, let's just compare the two. The one, the, the, the false believers said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? They turned back and no longer walked with Jesus. The true, true faith in Christ, true saving faith. I love Peter's response. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, chances are, Peter and the other true disciples probably had some trouble with what Jesus was saying, too. Probably didn't quite understand it, were probably kind of confused, weren't quite sure what to think. But when it comes down to it, they said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. See, the true disciples... And what true faith looks like is coming to Christ for who he is. Not looking to him just for stuff, for blessings. False faith here finds Jesus useful, merely useful to meet their needs. True saving faith finds Jesus beautiful and worthy and satisfying in and of himself. True faith doesn't come to Jesus merely as the giver of bread, but as the bread of life himself. Now, true faith does not view Jesus as a means to an end, as just a way to, to get better stuff. True faith views Jesus as the great end in and of himself. Jesus will not be treated as a means to an end. He is nothing less than the glorious, all-satisfying Savior. And to come to him as anything other than that, it's not saving faith in Christ. Jesus didn't come to give us stuff. He came to give us himself. He came to give us life in him. Let me give this analogy. I gave this actually at our uh, youth group a couple weeks ago. I grew up in the era where going to Chuck E. Cheese was a big thing. Anybody else? Is that still a thing? Do you still take kids there? I don't, I don't know. I'm seeing some parents nodding. Okay. But I was, I was a kid. I loved it. Because what's not to love as a kid? Tube slides, pizza, there's coins. Uh, you play games, you get t- tickets, get prizes. I mean, it's awesome. I loved all of those things about Chuck E. Cheese. If I were to just take a poll, if I was to survey all of you and say, what's the best thing about Chuck E. Cheese, what are some things you would say? I hear games. Games, pizza, prizes. Maybe not the pizza. That's the bread that perishes. (laughs) Yeah, friends. 
I can survey millions of people across the country. What's the best part about Chuck E. Cheese? Do you know what every single person would say? Pizza, the jungle gym, friends, games, prizes, all the cool stuff that's there. Do you know what absolutely nobody would say? Chuck. You know, the guy who actually owns it, it actually belongs to him, all, all that stuff. No, no one goes to Chuck E. Cheese to, to see Chuck and hang out with Chuck. Because there's nothing more terrifying than a giant robotic mouse. <laughs> if you did go to Chuck E. Cheese for that reason, we'll talk later. But, but why do we go to Chuck E. Cheese? We don't go because we don't, we, we don't find anything beautiful or inherently satisfying about Chuck himself. In fact, he's terrifying. We go to Chuck E. Cheese for his stuff. We like Chuck for his stuff. He gives us games. He's got cool prizes. He lets us hang out with our friends. He, he gives us all this cool stuff. So we like him for that reason. Now, that's clearly not a problem when it comes to Chuck E. Cheese. The problem I see is that so much of what passes for Christianity today is nothing more than what I call Chuck E. Cheese theology. This is what's commonly called the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. That says that Christ came, he loves us so much, he just wants to give us stuff, right? Have enough faith and believe and, and be made rich. God, will, he loves you, so he will bless you with stuff. A new car, a new house, a, a better, more money, all these things. Have the faith and believe and it will be yours. This is not Christianity. This is not the gospel. The gospel is not, for God so loved the world that he gives us stuff. The gospel is that for God so loved the world that he gave us his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Right? The prosperity gospel elevates gift above giver. It's all about the bread, all about what we can get from Jesus. Jesus, give me more bread, just like these people wanted here. They were so blinded by what they could get out of Jesus that they were blind to who Jesus was in and of himself. They wanted to be satisfied by bread that perishes so bad that they couldn't see Jesus for himself and be satisfied in him. And I fear that that's a trap that so many Christians and churches are falling into. That we're so caught up in the stuff that God can give us that we refuse to see how satisfying Christ is in and of himself. That ultimately we're looking to other things other than Christ for life and for satisfaction. Right, but Christ is enough. Right, worship team, wanna, you can go ahead and come forward. Christ is enough. The essence of the gospel is not that God loves us so much that he gives us stuff. The essence of the gospel is that he loves us so much that he gave us his son. True bread from heaven, true satisfaction, true joy, eternal life found only in him. And so church... 
Don't run to bread that perishes. Run to the bread that endures. Be satisfied with Christ. Right? The desires of your heart, those deep longings you have, can only be satisfied by Christ. Eternal life only comes in Christ himself. Right? Come to him, the living bread. Right? Again, anybody, if you don't know Christ, don't call yourself a Christian. I would plead with you, come and partake of the living bread today. Look on the sun and believe. Right? Find satisfaction, eternal joy, eternal life in him. And for us who are in Christ, we've been saved. Let us not look to other things but Christ. Again, not that we need to feel guilty about enjoying good gifts. Those are good things he's given us for his glory. Let us enjoy them for his glory, but let's not elevate gift above giver. All right, let us be satisfied in Christ. He is enough. He is enough to satisfy our hearts here and now. He's enough to give us peace here and now. He's enough to give us eternal joy. He's enough to give us eternal life. So don't work for the bread that perishes. Work for the bread that endures to eternal life. With that, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you show your great love for us in sending your Son to be our living bread. God, for sending him on the cross to bear our sin and shame and by allowing us to share in his resurrection life. Father, I pray for anybody in here who has not yet looked on Christ and believed. I pray uh, that you would lift the veil of blindness from their eyes, that they might look on the sun and believe. Lord, may today be the day of salvation, and may we rejoice in that. Father, I pray for your people in here, for your church. Father, thank you that you've made your son the bread of life for us. Thank you that we have come to share in his eternal life. Father, forgive us for the times that we've turned from him, that we've looked to other things for our satisfaction and our joy. Father, help us to see the surpassing worth of Christ. Help us to find him satisfied. May we find our ultimate joy and our greatest pleasure in him and in him alone. So, Father, help us now as one people in one body to turn and fix our eyes on Christ uh, to just be smitten with his glory. So, Father, we stand and we sing now uh, to the praise of your glorious name. Amen.